Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, for those of you who have not had a chance to meet, let me just say that I'm thankful for the opportunity to be with you this morning. Uh, I have had the privilege to be with uh, most of you over this, these last two days, on Friday night and on Saturday. And uh, it's my desire to have that time be kind of capped off together with the Word of God, which I'll do so in just a minute with you from Philippians. Uh, but before we do that, just a, a brief word of introduction and, uh, and also thankfulness. Uh, we are, my wife, uh, who's up here with me, and my three sons who are up here with me as well, uh, we are living in Miami, Florida, and uh, we have returned back to Miami after being gone for 20 years. My wife is born and raised in Miami. Her family goes back to the 1800s in Miami. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the chance that then we met was about 24 years ago. We met and married 22 years ago and then uh, moved to Los Angeles and then to Indianapolis. But uh, the Lord, through a series of circumstances and counsel that we received, brought us back to Miami, um, by which we're glad to be back there to start a new church, to plant a church. And the best way I can describe that is imagine for you here in Naples, there are obviously other churches that preach the gospel here in Naples, but imagine, as is the case before there was Faith Bible Church, um, just having the need for another faithful church uh, to be able to have the opportunity to reach out to more non-Christians in the community, connecting with them, befriending them, having them over for meals, doing Bible studies with them with the hope that God would convert them and then gather them together into a church. For there's a building and a parking lot and great resources. Well, that's us. So think of it like a desire for for us to be able to plant another healthy church in South Florida, specifically in Miami, uh, while you are here in Naples. And it's a joy of ours to be partnering together. I have a great love and appreciation for your pastor, Justin, and your other pastors, Phil and Andrew, and just very thankful for you guys. Uh, Friday night, dinner, Danelle and I had dinner, my wife and I had dinner at, at uh, Andrew and Sarah's house, and just got a chance to hear what God has been doing here in your own assembly these last couple of years, your faithfulness in the years prior to that, to the gospel as well, but very exciting now to be with you in this gathered time together with you, and thankful for your love for the Word of God. And as you know, that's not always true every place that you go. Uh, people reject that word, or maybe just have not even heard it to know it to reject it. So it's our desire in Miami to plant a faithful church that's faithful to the gospel and discipling those who have believed in that gospel to live their lives according to it, to center their lives and their community around that. And as we like to say at Grace Church Miami, we want to make, mature, and then mobilize disciples. Uh, we're just plagiarizing the Bible there. We're just quoting Jesus and Paul and others. We have nothing new under the sun to say. Uh, we're just quoting the scriptures there. So it's a desire of ours to do that in Miami. We appreciate your encouragement already, your kindness and your love towards us already, your prayers already. Anne has been super sweet to email me requests and get those out to others. Your elders have been very supportive and encouraging. Others have come and volunteered at our house to help fix it up for us to move into this fixture upper house. And we're very thankful and humbled by that. These guys were just beasts. They were just unbelievably worked hard and 
thankful for all the work that they've done, and I'm happy to report in one week we'll be able to move into that house and in that community we're planting in. So pray for us. We're meeting on Sunday nights as a core team, about 17, 20 of us together. We're continuing to add people to that, and we start our services, uh, Lord willing, in January, and we're excited for that time. So if we come to mind, pray for us, I would appreciate that. What's now in my mind is Philippians, and I want to pray to the Lord to ask Him to help us. So if you would pray with me now as we gather our thoughts to the Word of God in Philippians. Father, thank You for this assembly, the opportunity to worship You and praise You. Thank You, Father, for Your revealed Word and the opportunity that we have to have our lives be shaped by it, to be informed by it, all for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, Your Son. Father, we really do pray this morning would be an offering to you and in our days afterwards as we live according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, legend has it about a man that was stuck in the wilderness, a desert land, for many, many days without food and worse, without water. You can only go so long in those conditions before you die, and he felt like his life was going to be ending soon. As he made his way over another hill, to his surprise, not sure if at first it was a mirage, but glad to realize it was not, there was a a shelter up ahead, an old building, dilapidated at best, part of its roof missing, and he made his way over to there, just collapsed against the wall of this building sitting in the shade, just taking a moment to himself. As he looked out in front of him, about 15 feet away, there looked to be an old well, the kind that you would pump with a big handle. It was clearly old, appeared to be quite rusty, and probably imagined in light of the condition of this building that that well would be dry. But he saw sticking up from the ground, not far from the well, what appeared to be a jug. Desperately, he crawled over and pulled it out of the ground, having been half buried, and found in the jug some water, and attached to the neck of the jug was a note that said to take the water and to pour it into the pump to prime the pump. And the note said, P.S., be sure to fill the jug up with water once you're done. He was stuck with this dilemma. Because he wasn't sure if this jug was actually referring to a well that actually would still work today. It looked to be dated itself. The writing was weathered and and, uh, faded. He looked inside of the jug, could see the water, not sure how long that had been there. It's a disgusting condition if he would want to drink that. And so he was in this predicament. Should he drink the water in the jug or should he pour it all out into the well in order to prime it? Sat back against this shady wall and finally decided this was it. This was his fateful decision. And so he decided to then take that jug and to go over to the well, crawling over, and he poured it into the pump in order to prime it. Desperately, he saw the last little vial of water get poured out. And he began to prime the pump and pump it and pump it and just made a excruciatingly loud squeaking sound. Nothing. Nothing happened. Crawled back against the wall, very discouraged. Crawled back to the pump one more time, began to pump it and pump it and pump it. And to surprise, something started to come out. 
But to his dismay, it was not good water. It was more like sludge, brown, nasty water. And he continued to pump and continued to pump. And to his surprise, though, and his delight, the water became clearer and clearer and fresh and cold. And as he, the more he pumped, the more the water came out, and he began to drink like he had never drank before in his life. And just loved it and drank everything he possibly could until he was so full. And then he remembered that jug and he went over and took the jug and he filled it back up with water, put the top on it, put the note back around the neck of its bottle. But then he took a piece of paper and he wrote at the very bottom of the piece of paper and he said the following, believe me, it really works. You have to give it all away before you can get anything back. My friends, therein lies our theme for this morning. Believe me, it really works. You have to give everything away before you can get anything back. It is in these words that we find so calmly the message of every Christian to every person who is not a Christian in telling them the gospel. It is the message of every pastor to every Christian who is being called for their entire life to serve the Lord in every area of their life. And this is the message that Paul, the author of our letter this morning from Philippians, is teaching the Philippians that they should practice. But not only that they should practice, but he, by example, is practicing himself. Philippians 1, I trust that you're there. If not, we have a pew Bible provided for you. I believe it's page 980, but you can find that. You can see in Philippians chapter 1 this letter. It's a letter to this new church. They didn't have Christian parents and Christian grandparents. They're a first-generation church. And Paul, having planted this church, having helped start this church by the work of the Holy Spirit, is now writing to them years later, wanting to encourage them in the faith. But he writes them in difficult conditions himself. For those of you taking notes this morning and looking for a bit of a navigational map on where we are and where we are headed, here's what we're going to learn together this morning. Four lessons for Faith Bible Church to remember from Paul's ministry. Four lessons from Faith Bible Church, for Faith Bible Church to remember from Paul's ministry. The the first lesson we need to understand comes from verse 12. Now as we set that up, let's look again at verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now with that backdrop, let's get to our first lesson. Lesson number one, God orchestrates events in His people's lives to advance the gospel. God orchestrates events in His people's lives 
to advance the gospel. That's exactly what he's teaching in verses 12 through 14. Look at it now with me. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's been happening in Paul's life? Well, go back, if you will, to end of verse 7. He makes passing reference to it. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation for the gospel. You see, friends, what Paul is talking about here is the reality from the location by which he pens this letter. He is not sitting on a Mediterranean seashore enjoying the resort amenities of a great five-star place. He's sitting in a prison cell, a prison cell because of his faithfulness to preaching the gospel. But he doesn't find anybody at fault for that. He's actually recognizing what God has done. And he recognizes what God has done because of what God is wanting to accomplish in doing what he has done. Because you notice in verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's happened to him? Paul has been arrested. Paul has been persecuted. Paul has been maligned in his reputation. And how Paul interprets that, it's a new arena with a new audience to advance the same gospel, the same glorious grace by which the Philippians know themselves. That's what he says in the middle of verse 6 there, how you are all partakers with me of grace. Well, he is a, a messenger of grace, the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he's speaking about here. What he's talking about is that this new audience has been provided for him. Look at verse 13. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, Paul is auditing a problem that can creep into my heart and possibly some of your hearts. And the problem is this. God, as your child... Since you love me as proven by your sacrifice of your son for me, and wanting as my adopted father to love me as your child, I can only but imagine that it's your desire to bless me. And in blessing me, you will correspondingly, sequentially provide for me raises at work, favor with coworkers, uh, affordable housing with great discounts when I go to get an apartment or a house, healthy kids so we don't have to use our medical deductible any year, uh, just overall pretty athletically inclined disposition with a beautiful body and great skin. I mean, this, Lord, is what it would look like because I would say if you provided these things and say, wow, how amazing you are, Eric, how, how talented you are, Eric, how, how blessed you are, I could say, well, you know, it's not me, it's the Lord. It's not me, it's the Lord. Don't, don't give your attention to me. I know you're envious of my hairstyle. It's not me. The truth is, those who are in Christ at times are blessed. In fact, it could be said at all times are blessed. 
But sometimes those blessings do not come with what we often think of as promotion Christianity. Always promoting up to a better sequence, a better environment, a better success. Sometimes God in His mysterious providence for our good and for His glory puts us in seasonal times of prison cells. Difficult seasons of relational hardships. With frustrating coworkers that are lazy, incompetent, and lie about the work we've done. Bosses who take credit for our work and don't commend us for our work. Neighbors that increasingly are seemingly hostile to us and are not in any way friendly in any act of receptivity to us. Children who reject us, even though we've loved them and raised them and taught them well. These are those prison cell moments. And Paul is saying God is orchestrating events in His people's lives to advance the gospel. And this is requiring a big boy version of Christianity. A big girl version of Christianity where we understand that even the very apostles themselves, seemingly the the first generation, the, the, the people who would know Christ and knew Christ the best because of the relationship, they went through incredible hardship and they thought of that as an opportunity to advance the gospel. See, sometimes we wrongly think comfort is how God blesses. It is true. At times, how God blesses, He blesses with comfort. Sometimes it's pain. Sometimes it's hardship. I'm reminded of the story of John Bunyan. For those of you not familiar with John Bunyan, he is a He was a well-known preacher in the 1600s in England, Bedford, England. John Bunyan, as a preacher in England, uh, was known and eventually arrested by those in authority because of his association and alignment or rejection auditing with the Church of England, some issues that they had. And so he was arrested for his ministry and he was put into prison. The problem, though, with those who are officials, the, the, the ruling leaders, they didn't think through this very well, because what happened was John Bunyan went to prison, but then every Sunday he would come out and he would preach in the prison yard. The reason this was a problem was because all of the people outside of the walls of the prison who were going to his congregation, who going to his church, they would come to the prison and they would just stand outside the walls and hear him preach. But in addition to all of them hearing him preach, all the prisoners would begin to gather to hear him preach. So those who intended to silence him actually sort of giving him a new audience, similar to Paul here. He had become known to all the imperial guard. He had become known to these, to these British rulers and leaders and these, these prisoners, these prison guards, if you will. So those in authority were just beside themselves with anger. So they did the only thing they knew to do with John Bunyan. They locked him up in a dark dungeon and refused to let him to come out so that he could not be heard in any sermon by people in the prison or by people outside the walls. Here's what the Lord did with that. During those years in which John Bunyan was locked away in that cell, he wrote a book for people outside those walls, a book known as Pilgrim's Progress. A book that would go on to describe in an allegorical fashion the story of the gospel that today has been translated in over 200 languages 
has never been out of print since its original printing in the 1600s, and for a couple of centuries was the second most read, second most printed book outside of the Bible. Been read by hundreds of millions of people. And this was their attempt to silence them. You see, friends, when God moves us in different seasons and different circumstances, at times it's because of what He intends to accomplish with us and through us for the advancing of the story of Jesus Christ. What about you? What about your marriage? What about your parenting? about your job. It's, it's in the sadness of tragic divorce. It's in the sadness of miscarriage. It's in the sadness of a rejected, rebellious child. It's in the sadness of a job loss. When fists are pumping in the air, prayers are being screamed at God, and tears are streaming down the cheeks of our faces, that we can ask the question of the Lord, Lord, what do you want of me? How am I to tell people about you in light of this? Friends, I can assure you there's an answer to that question. For in that season and in those circumstances, to see faith that holds. This is exactly what we saw with Job himself. Job is essentially a case study in persevering faith. A man who had it all, a man who had nothing but who through all of that never rejected the Lord. Because you notice in verse 14 what Paul says. It's not only the audience by which he's in prison with, it's also the audience by which he writes. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, Paul is rejoicing because it's like a win-win situation here. It's a win because of the non-Christians he gets to tell about Jesus and why he's responding in faith, while he's trusting the Lord, well, seemingly circumstantially he should not. At the same time, he's rejoicing because other Christians are seeing his example and be like, man, that encourages me. That encourages me. And it's counterintuitive, right? Because you think, wait a minute, he preaches the gospel, he goes to jail. I do not want to preach the gospel. But that's not the result here. The result is they are bold to speak the word without fear. Why? Because they understand, it turns out jail is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's a new audience. It's a new place. Our first lesson here is that God orchestrates events in His people's lives to advance the gospel. Our second lesson for Faith Bible Church to remember is that we should rejoice when the gospel is being preached Rejoice when the gospel is being preached while you pray for other churches and ministries. While you pray for other churches and ministries. Now, verses 15 to 18 is a very odd section. Look at it with me. Verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I rejoice. That's what he's saying here. He is excited for this. Go back to verse 15. Notice what he's dealing with. 
envy and rivalry. There were people who were preaching the gospel, but doing it with the wrong motives. It's not exactly known. Some historians and commentators have sort of discussed what's happening here in the text. It's presumed that what's happening is that there are people, similar to kind of in a Corinthian context, there are people who are jealous and envious of Paul's ministry reputation, his following, uh, him being an apostle of Christ. And so they're sort of claiming, well, Paul's here, we're better. And apparently what this is presuming is happening here is that they are basically maligning Paul's character. They're slandering Paul. They're basically saying about him, listen, to the Christians who are not in jail, listen, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. You're pretty smart. You can figure this out for yourself. But if Paul was really obeying the Lord and honoring the Lord, do you think God would put him in jail? That's not how the Lord works. Why would God silence a faithful witness when he could do so much more ministry out of jail? Whereas yours truly, I'm not in jail. Just being a faithful servant to the Lord, I'm humble, and, uh, which is always ironic when you declare it about yourself. And, but here I am, I'm not in jail. I mean, you can conclude it for yourself. Who do you think the Lord is more pleased with their ministry? Paul, in jail, me, out of jail. I mean, I don't want to tell you what to believe. You believe for yourself. So they're slandering and maligning Paul's reputation. And Paul, here's what Paul says to that point. I don't care. I don't care. Now, Paul is not saying he doesn't care about their sin. What he's saying is he doesn't care about his reputation. He doesn't care about his reputation because what's happening here is in the text, you've got these sort of mixed ideas going on. Like you can see this in verse 15. Some are from envy and rivalry and others from goodwill. So you've got the people who are like, I want them a kickball team. The people I don't want them a kickball team. People I want to have friends on social media. People I don't want to have friends on social media. I want to block them. And he talks about their motive behind it. The people from goodwill, they're doing it out of love. The people who are, they know that he's doing it for the defense of the gospel. The envy and rivalry out of selfish ambition. See, well, here's what happens sometimes with ministry. Ministry gives people platforms. Platforms that can be threatened by other people's ministry platforms. So ironically, pastors, preachers can be very insecure by other people's ministries, and then draw their followers into slandering and maligning other churches and other ministries. And Paul instead says, let's, let's have a single question to answer. Are these people preaching the gospel, the substitutionary righteousness of Jesus Christ, faith alone and Christ alone? Now, for those of you who are here this morning who are not Christians, let me be clear for you that you understand sort of what you're listening to right now. The challenge for you as a non-Christian is that you don't perhaps understand what sometimes can happen embarrassingly with Christians, and that is we can kind of sometimes ourselves get mixed up in the ministry we're committing, the ministry we're pursuing. What we want to make clear to you and what Paul wants to make sure is being clear to the Philippians and their preaching is that the clarity for you is this. There is no hope for you or for me apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Hope from what? 
hope from the righteous debt that has to be paid by all those who are in debt to God for rebelling and rejecting against Him. We know this in His Word. We know this in our conscience. We know that there's a God shown in even creation itself. But God in His mercy sends His Son to be a substitute accomplishing all of the righteous that you nor I have ever accomplished and then receives upon Himself all the punishment that I otherwise and you otherwise deserve. And then is resurrected from the grave three days later. So that all those who would realize He is the Son of God and repent of their sins and put their faith in Him would be forgiven. Friends, that is my story. A sinner saved by grace. That is Paul's story. The question is, is that your story? See, the challenge is, Paul is like, listen, as long as that story of God's grace in Jesus Christ is getting out, I am rejoicing. I am rejoicing. Now, for those of us who are Christians, sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes it's not enough. Why? Because ministries are not just like ours. And in that, we become petty and factious and divisive. Now, do not misunderstand me. I believe in the clarity and the sufficiency and the authority and the honor of translating God's Word accurately and applying it to all of life. Paul is no more happy with these people's bad motives than I would be today. But Paul is triaging the greatest concern is the gospel being proclaimed clearly. What that means is that Faith Bible Church has an understanding that to reach Naples and beyond, it's going to take more than just Faith Bible Church. It's not just going to take the churches that Faith Bible Church intends to plant or help plant. It's going to take other good gospel works that are advancing the gospel. And so in that, we rejoice, we pray for them, we love them, we thank the Lord for them. That does not mean that we maybe appreciate everything that they do. We might have concerns for that. Or the way that they do it, we might have concerns for that. Or what we maybe have understood firsthand, not secondhand, lest that be gossip firsthand, some of their mixed motives of ministry. We don't rejoice in those things. But Paul is recognizing here, we need to see and to recognize The idea here is that we are rejoicing where the gospel is being preached. Paul's joy was not tied to his circumstances, verses 12 to 14, nor his critics, verses 15 to 18 here, nor his critics. So as you think about people in ministry, it's for all kinds of reasons that people are in ministry. We pray that they are faithful to the gospel. God is gracious in helping mature them as we desire to be maturing ourselves. Third lesson for Faith Bible Church to remember from Paul's ministry is to find your courage and confidence in Christ. Find your courage and confidence in Christ. Look with me at the very end of verse 18 into the beginning of 19 through verse 26. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul wants the Philippians, like God wants us today, to find our courage and our confidence in Christ. You'll notice what he says here in verse 19, where he says, this will lead to salvation for me. This or turn out, turn out for my deliverance. This is actually a, an exact quote from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of what Job is saying himself in Job chapter uh, 13, verse 16, where Job is saying that he knows this will turn out for his deliverance. But Job doesn't know if he's going to live or die. In fact, in Job's condition, he's so physically overwhelmed with his physical condition, he's got boils all over his body. His wife's words, assuming, assuming he's going to die, are, why don't you curse God and die? Like, get it over with. So Job, in his comment in Job 13, verse 16, is not confident that he's going to somehow get better. You know, there's no essential oils, you know, a little moisturizer in the air going to take care of him. He is saying, I don't know, but whether I live or die, it's going to be okay. Paul is saying that himself here. He will experience deliverance irrespective of whether or not he lives or dies. See, Paul's primary thought is his perseverance in the faith for the magnification of Christ, not Paul's freedom or Paul's life. See, the truth is, when we come to passages like James chapter 1, consider it all joy when you encounter trials because of what they produce in you. We're like, joy? The first thing I pray when I encounter a trial is, God, make the trial end. I don't know what happened. It's like you got busy, you got distracted. I mean, I didn't mean no disrespect, but this happened in my life. I'm assuming you know about it. Make it end as quickly as possible. Paul is not saying, God, get me out of jail as quickly as possible. It's like he's having a different conversation altogether. He's saying, whether I live or die, whether I'm in prison or not, I want to make sure Christ is honored in my life. He says in verse 20, I will not at all, I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by death. I have, as a pastor, gone to minister to many people in difficult circumstances. Death of children, uh, the eve of their own cancer surgery. And I, as a brother in Christ, as a pastor to them, want to come be with them, read the Word to them, pray with them and encourage them. Many times have I left those bedsides with tears running down my cheeks, because what I intended to do for them, they did for me. As they testified that they were not anxious about how the surgery was going to go, 
that they were grieving the loss of the child and other difficult days, but that they knew the Lord was wise in all of His ways. He was good in all of what He did and that this would work out for His glory. And if He would be glorified in their passing, and they trusted Him being the all-wise God, And then they would share with me some scripture they had read themselves. And I just pulled up a chair and listened to them minister to me. So my friends, pastors might preach the sermons, but you live them. You practice them. Paul might seem exceptional to some of you, but to others of you, He's quite normal because of the examples you have sitting to your left and to your right of people who have been in very difficult circumstances but have said, whether I live or I die, whether I'm promoted or I'm fired, whether I can make my mortgage payment or I'm evicted, I pray that Christ is honored in my life. And that's the, that's the testimony of brothers and sisters right here in this room but which you can find modern-day 21st century examples of encouragement so that you can find that courage as well as the Lord provides it for you. This is so contrary to what we often see sometimes in the world, though. There's an example in 1 Kings 20. You don't need to turn there. I'll just reference it briefly to you. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him that he had conquered, horses and chariots. He went up and he closed it on Samaria and he fought against it. And then he sent his messengers to the city of Ahab, the king of Israel. And he said to the king of Israel, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and your children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, And how shall he answer? What shall he say? Because circumstantially what he's saying is, Listen, the odds are against you. People who have gone up against me, they have died. You don't want to die. Just surrender. Trust in me. I will be your Savior. This this Gentile king, this pagan king. What's so unbelievably tragic is what the king of Israel says to him. He says in response, As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Friends, it's in these most difficult circumstances where we get our faith in the Lord truly audited, truly tested to find out in whom do we place our ultimate trust. It is in these moments where we experience these challenges. See, I would even say to those of you who are parents, when you think about your children, raising your children, or your desire for your grandchildren? What is it you ultimately want for them? What are you praying for for them? I hope it's more than their health. I hope it's more than their friendships. I hope it's more than their academic accomplishments and their stable careers and their marriages or their friendships. I hope it's more than I hope it's that they would be able to say those words that King of Israel said, but not to the world, but say it to the Lord. All that I have and all that I am is yours, Lord. 
My concern sometimes for us in the church of Jesus Christ is that our love for the Lord is sometimes tested with just something as small and seeming as precious as our children. What instead Paul says here in Philippians is that everything is for the Lord. He wants the Lord and he wants the good of others. He says this in verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith. You notice how often Paul's working out his own salvation for the glory of Christ and for the good of others? For the glory of Christ and the good of others. Not a position of pride, but as a position of servant-heartedness. Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. What is God doing in your life now that's positioning you to be a blessing and a servant to others in the future? where you can weep with those who weep, not from a position of sympathy, but empathy. How you can care and show that concern accordingly. How you can be an encouragement to them. What Paul is doing here. Which takes us to our fourth lesson. Our first lesson was God orchestrates events in His people's lives to advance the gospel. Our second lesson was that we should rejoice when the gospel is being preached while we pray for the churches and ministries. Third lesson is that we should find our courage and confidence in Christ. And our fourth lesson is we are each responsible for this church's unity. You are each responsible for this church's unity. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ... So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's remarkable here is that Paul is saying, listen, the church outside of your own local assembly might not be unified, right? I mean, that's sort of the implicit reality here in verses 15 to 18. Some envy and rivalry, some from goodwill. That doesn't appear to be John 17 answering Jesus' prayer about unity amongst all of his followers. But what he is instructing here in verse 27 is in this local assembly, this church in Philippi, this church of the Philippians, he wants their church to be represented with unity. That your manner of life would be worthy of the gospel. This is common language of how Paul repeatedly refers to. Uh, He says, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul repeatedly is referring to, listen, so you say, so you shall live. But notice that living is not just how you live outside of these walls, it's also how you live inside these walls relationally. How you interact together in church community. So he's commending them for that and commanding them for that. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, he wants to be with them but he can't right now, he's in prison, I may hear that you are standing firm. And then look at the descriptions there. One spirit, one mind, side by side. It's this sort of continued compounding of these descriptions that just kind of reinforce 
the importance of them being unified together. Now, notice what they're unified in. Side by side for the faith of what? Our music traditions. Side by side for our translation of choice. Side by side for our different methods of how we do ministry. Side by side, he says there, for the faith of the gospel. How does a church find true unity? When it elevates the gospel of Jesus Christ, celebrates that gospel, and continues to find their identity and relationships in light of that gospel. Everything else is secondary, if not tertiary. Friends, that's where we find the expression and the unifying reality of how we can have that as a church, which is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's wanting them to have. I think sometimes in churches, there is a temptation for members to feel like it's really the leader's job to maintain the unity of the church. And then the leaders will say, hey, or the members will then say, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this, but so-and-so is doing this. You should address this because if you don't, it might lead to disunity in the church. While they might not fully verbalize it like that, that's essentially kind of what they're saying. Or, worse yet, they might say, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is happening. If you don't address it, I'm not happy with what's going on in the church. So either how someone's living or talking or what something's happening they don't appreciate, you need to address this. Here's why this is problematic and really, quite honestly, sinful. The first exercise of making your pastors aware of other people in the church is what the problem, and if you're not careful, you're basically holding the pastor responsible for your Christianity, which otherwise should be, pastors, can you teach me, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, can you teach me how to address this with my fellow member of what I see so I can pursue them and love them and pray for them and encourage them and talk to them about this and bring the Scriptures to bear in this, but I don't expect you, pastors, to do, you elders, to do all of the unifying initiatives around here. The second one, which is clearly much more of an ungodly situation, is basically saying, hey, if you don't do X, then I cannot be responsible for Y. What's your call? What are you going to do? At church that I pastored before in Indianapolis, when I first arrived, uh, this was rampant throughout the entire church. It was unbelievable. I mean, not a week would go by that this was not a conversation being had. It was off the charts. And in fact, it began to infect the leaders. Because when leaders would have meetings together, it was kind of like the senatorial-minded leadership. Like, hey, we have a constituency. I'm the representative. If we don't do this, they're going to do this. And that just sounds bad, so we need to accommodate them in this. I was like, oh, dear Lord. Has anybody read their Bibles recently? What I want us to understand is what Paul is saying here in the text is that every single member of the body of Christ, as we've covenanted together in a meaningful relationship to one another, as a new covenant community, is responsible for striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That that unity is accomplished by which we are each bearing responsibility to fulfill the one another's in community, that's true biblical fellowship, Love one another, pray for each other, seek each other out, care for each other, serve one another, host each other, confess your sins one to another so that you might pray for each other. 
Love covering a multitude of sins, you're forgiving each other regularly. But all of these things are expressions of and illustrations of how you have made Jesus Christ the center of what you're about and what you're doing, that you love. And the question is, is that your desire? Secondly, is it your practice? Paul says, whether I am with you or I'm absent, I hope this is what I'm hearing about you, God. I hope this is what I know about you. That this is a place, not of uniformity. Everyone looks the same. Everyone thinks the same. Everyone votes the same. Everyone dresses the same. No, no, not uniformity. But unity around the gospel where you are saying we love Christ. You love Christ. I love Christ. How can I get with you in friendship and relationship to be together in community that we might know that together? One mind, one spirit, side by side for the faith of the gospel. You are each responsible for this church's unity. And in doing so, you tell the story of the power of the gospel to bring a bunch of different people from different backgrounds together to be a family of brothers and sisters with Christ as your head. And in that, you rejoice. March of 2017, my wife and I had a chance to get away on an annual marriage trip. It's a practice of ours to do every year together. Take some time away, just the two of us as a couple. And in God's grace, for the last 22 years, we've been able to do this in different fashion, in different forms. Sometimes it's meant just staying in the back room of someone's house and just have some time together and talking about our marriage and talking about ministry and talking about life. Well, this past March of 2017, I was on a trip when I was still living in Indianapolis on a trip, ironically, to Fort Lauderdale. I surprised my wife and uh, I took her to the church that we had been married in, First Baptist of Fort Lauderdale. And uh, it wasn't the church that we were attending at the time, but our church was under construction, so we got married in that church, First Baptist of Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I had contacted the, one of the pastors there without her knowing and said, hey, I would love to come to the church on this day with my wife, and uh, it's the middle of the week, and I said, I'd love to just renew my vows to my wife. And, uh, and so they went off the charts and got like their staff photographer. It's how you know it's a big church and they have like a staff photographer. Um, and, and other people, and they were recording it, and it was a beautiful time. We, we said our vows together and sweet time, and we renewed our vows to each other. Now, it wasn't because it was our anniversary. It was actually my wife's birthday, which means we had been married for, for uh, let's see, at that point it would have been uh, 20 years, 6 months, and 19 days. Bit of a Rain Man moment there for you. Um, and as an expression of just my love for my wife. Now, we were doing that not because we were on rocky times right then and there. It was kind of touching growth and marriage. That was not why we were doing that. that. We were not doing that because uh, we had just read a book and said, man, we should probably do this together. We did that because it was the desire of my heart to just continually restate to my wife what was already illustrated at other times, I love you, 
I care about you. I'm committed to you. I have eyes only for you. And I'm thank God for the marriage that God has given us. Friends, I'm asking you this morning, is it possible for you to renew your vows to the Lord? Not because you've been living in sin, perhaps. Not because you've been rejecting His Word and living rebelliously and not being described as we've read this morning. But maybe just as a restatement of who you're committed to, why you love Him, why you're thankful for His work for you on the cross. So that you would never say one day like a king of Israel said to the world, all that I have is yours. But you will say again and again, day after day, to the Lord, all that I have and all that I am is yours. Would that be your desire and prayer this morning? I hope that it is. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, Thank you for the encouragement of Paul. But Lord, thank you as well for the encouragement of Jose and Samuel and Mary and Elizabeth, Roger, brothers and sisters in the faith who are 21st century examples of Paul. That not just in seasons of blessing, but also in seasons of hardship and suffering, they love you. God, I thank you for whoever that is in this room, for their faithfulness to you, for what an encouragement that is to others of us, to press on, to continue to strive, continue to lay down our lives for you. God, I pray that you would bless Faith Bible Church, Lord. You already have. But God, I'm also aware that blessing can come in different forms. God, right now, they they want to have permitting be approved. Lord, if that permitting is not a smooth process and it's difficult, Lord, let their testimony before civic leaders be one of a godly reputation. God, I know that they want to reach out to their neighbors increasingly. Father, if that desire to reach out is seen as hate speech, as unloving, self-righteous, and judgmental, or let them be quick to forgive and continually gracious. Father, I know that other ministries can be challenged by the health of other ministries and be tempted to be fearful or slandering. Father, I pray that Faith Bible Church would love them and forgive them and pray for them as they would desire to be prayed for themselves. And Lord, I thank you for the elders, pastors of this church. Thank you for these men who are examples of shepherds who know their sheep and desire to feed their sheep. Father, I pray that you'd bless their hand, protect their marriages, bless their homes with not only happiness but also holiness. Care for them, Lord, in all seasons of doubt or discouragement. God, I pray that the members of this church would be committed to not only to you, to love you, but also to support and encourage their pastors for a great relationship of biblical leadership and biblical followership. That this would be a healthy church, no matter how it's considered, no matter what is preached, that they would repent and believe and trust in Christ the Savior. 
Lord, bless their ministry labors. May you use them to bring many to faith in your Son and to do a work exceedingly abundantly beyond anything they could ever ask or imagine. For your honor and for your glory alone. Amen.